If you have your Bibles, if you would open them to Genesis chapter 25. Genesis 25. Today we come to the last in our series on the life of Abraham. But as you will see, and I'll mention at the end, we, were, we will continue uh, beyond Abraham. In this last passage about Abraham, we come across certain surprising issues that if we're not careful will distract us from the main point of what the scripture is trying to say. Let's look at the first six verses. Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. She bore him Zimran, Jokshan, Midian, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Jokshan was the father of Sheba and Dedan. The descendants of Dedan were the Asherites, the Latushites, and the Leumites. The son of Midian were Ephah, Ephor, Hanak, Abida, and Eldah. All these were the descendants of Keturah. Abraham left everything he owned to Isaac. But while he was still living, he gave gifts to the sons of his concubines and sent them away from his son Isaac to the land of the east. Yet we are not told when Abraham took Keturah as his wife. Was it before Sarah died or was it after? We're simply not told. Um, we saw last Sunday that Sarah died at the age of 127, meaning that Abraham was 137. We read in Genesis 23, she died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron in the land of Canaan, and Abraham went to mourn for Sarah and to weep over her. One could read into this that Abraham and Sarah were no longer living together, um, but we're simply not told. As we are not told, when he took Keturah to be his wife? Or was she in fact a concubine as we see in verse number six? What we are told is that Keturah bore him six sons. So that means he has eight sons. He has Ishmael, Isaac, and then the six sons from Keturah. Um, but we are told, and I think this is the point that's trying to be made, that Isaac was set apart from the others. He left, Abraham left everything he had to Isaac. He didn't neglect the other sons. He gave them gifts and then sent them off to the east. Okay, But it's interesting, if you look at verse number six, while he was still living, he gave gifts to the sons of his concubines. I mean, is this Hagar and Keturah, or were there other women involved? Um, we're simply not told. And you might say, why not? Because I would like to know. But in fact, as we find in Scripture that we are not told everything, but we are told that which is critical to the story of redemption. And the story of redemption begins with Abraham and goes to Isaac and then to Jacob, to Judah, and so on. So we are given some information, their names and things like that. Um, but the focus is on Isaac, the direct descendant of Abraham, the child of promise. By the way, when we first started the series in chapter 12, um, Ab Abram, that was his name then, was told, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. This was fulfilled through Isaac and his descendants. But when the uh, seal of the covenant, circumcision, was established, we hear something else. 
Um, as for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham, that is, father of a multitude. For I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you and kings will come from you. Are these sons, these six sons and then Ishmael, are they the fulfillment of that promise? As tempting as that is, I I don't think that's the case. And that's why we need the New Testament. We can't just do the Old Testament. We can't just do the New Testament. We need them together. Uh, Paul wrote in Romans 4, Therefore the promise comes by faith so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring. Not only to those who are of the law, that is Jews, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God in whom he believed, the God who gives life to the dead and calls things as though that that are not as though they were. So when you go back to the initial promises, this is the beginning of chapter 12, I will make you into a great nation, I will bless you, I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. That is to say, salvation comes not just to the Jews, but to the Gentiles, to the whole world, through Abraham. So Isaac's important. He gives everything to Isaac, but he does not neglect. He does not forget his other sons. Okay. How much that involved? What kind of gifts? Gold, silver, camels? We're simply not told. Just that he gave gifts to them and then he sent them away. Now we come to Abraham's death, beginning in verse number seven. Altogether, Abraham lived 175 years. Then Abraham breathed his last and died at a good old age, an old man and full of years, and he was gathered to his people. His sons Isaac and Ishmael buried him in the cave of Machpelah near Mamre in the field of Ephron, son of Zohar the Hittite, the field Abraham had bought from the Hittites. There Abraham was buried with his wife Sarah. After Abraham's death, God blessed his son Isaac, who then lived near Beer Lahoi Roy. So Abraham lived to be 175. That is, he lived an additional 48 years after the death of Sarah. Actually, I think it's 38, if my math is right. And he died a good death. Good old age, an old man, and full of years, he was gathered to his people. By the way, the expression, he was gathered to his people, is used to describe his death. Um, Certain things to remember about this, from this passage. Um, Abraham was told that his descendants would be mistreated and enslaved for 400 years. But then he's told, you, however, will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. So Abraham dying at this point is, in fact, the fulfillment of what God had promised him. And although it's not spelled out, the expression points to life after death. That is, he was gathered to his people. 
That is, his people are on the other side, and he now joins them. In Job chapter 3, the famous scene where Job just erupts, and he curses the day he was born. For now I would be lying down in peace, I would be asleep and at rest, with kings and counselors of the earth who built for themselves places now lying in ruins. That is to say, our time here is limited, but there is something after death. Abraham was gathered to his people. Death is described as involving a community to be gathered to his people. We tend to view death uh, in isolation. People say, you know, you're born alone and you die alone. Um, And when you are born, you're brought into a community, into a family. And I would argue that when we die, we are also brought into a community, that of God's people. Uh, One writer has said, we tend to view death as done in isolation because in a society marked by excessive individualism, one may die in isolation because he or she lived the same way. If we live as individuals and we have no sense of community, yeah, then you can see death as, yeah, that's something you do alone. But in fact, it is, we are part of a community here, and after death, we are part of a community over there. Paul wrote in Romans 14, For none of us lives to himself alone, and none of us dies to himself alone. If we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life so that he might be the Lord both of the dead and the living. We might be physically dead here, but we are alive in the presence of Christ. And then, getting back to the passage here, I don't know if this struck you, but Abraham's burial was carried out by Isaac and Ishmael. Does that surprise you? Um, I thought that Ishmael and Hagar had been cast out. Um, but apparently there was continued contact uh, between Abraham and Ishmael and between Isaac and Ishmael. And so when Abraham is to be buried, Isaac doesn't say, you don't belong, you're not part of, I'm the chosen one. No, the two sons together bury their father. As I told you, scripture is sufficient, but it's not exhaustive, but there's so many things we would like to know. But then the focus is on Isaac, and that's the point of this chapter. We might like, what, Keturah, and he had six sons, and all these things. We get distracted. The point is, God's promise is from Abraham to Isaac. So verse uh, number 11, after Abraham's death, God blessed his son Isaac. Now, the story of Isaac will be picked up in verse number 19. But in between, verses 12 through 18 we are told about Ishmael and his descendants. You see, Ishmael is not denied. He is not ignored. Do you remember what Ishmael means? God hears. The angel of the Lord told Hagar, you are to name him Ishmael. That is, God hears. And then the angel also said, I will make him into a great nation. And later we read, God was with the boy as he grew up. I find it interesting that as the story of Abraham concludes, Abraham has died, he's been buried, Ishmael is mentioned, 
and his 12 sons, his descendants. And then, in a sense, that's the end of their participation in this, and then it shifts to Isaac. Okay. So look, if you would, at verses 12 through 18. This is the account of Abraham's son, Ishmael. So no denying it, okay? It's no pushing him off to the side. Whom Sarah's maidservant, Hagar the Egyptian, bore to Abraham. These are the names of the sons of Ishmael listed in the order of their birth. Nebaioth, the firstborn of Ishmael, Kedar, Adbil, Mibsam, Mishnah, Duma, Masa, Hadad, Tima, Jetur, Nafish, and Kiduma, or Kedema. These were the sons of Ishmael. And these are the names of the twelve tribal rulers according to their settlements and camps. Altogether, Ishmael lived 137 years. He breathed his last and died, and he was gathered to his people. His descendants settled in the area from Havilah to Shur, near the border of Egypt, as you go toward Asher. And they lived in hostility toward all their brothers. Things to consider. Ishmael had 12 sons, as we will see Jacob did. He lived to be 137, and again we hear the words, he was gathered to his people. His descendants settled along the Egyptian border in the Sinai Peninsula. Um, why there? Well, Hagar was an Egyptian, and she got an Egyptian wife for Ishmael. So that's, they sort of relate to Egypt in that regard. And they lived in hostility against all their brothers. Is this Abraham's sons were simply not told. But this is part of the prophecy before, that Ishmael and his people would be always antagonistic uh, toward others. And we see that, in fact, that's the case. So now Ishmael leaves the scene. He has died, and his descendants, they come up occasionally, but now the focus is on Isaac and his line. Verse 19. This is the account of Abraham's son, Isaac. The first was Abraham's son, Ishmael, now Isaac. Abraham became the father of Isaac. And Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel the Aramean from Padan Aram and sister of Laban the Aramean. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was barren. The Lord answered his prayer and his wife Rebekah became pregnant. The babies jostled each other within her and she said, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. The Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other and the older will serve the younger. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin sons in her womb. The first, came out, the first to come out was red and his whole body was like a hairy garment. So they named him Esau, which means hairy. After this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel, so he was named Jacob, one who grasped the heel. Isaac was six years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. The boys grew up, and Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was a quiet man staying among the tents. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. We're given a timeline of sorts here. We're told, first of all, that 
Isaac was 40 when he married Rebecca. He was 37 when his mother died. So three years later, he married Rebecca. And he was 60 when Rebecca gave birth to Esau and Jacob. By the way, Rebecca's lineage is also mentioned, that she is the daughter of Bethuel. She is the sister of Laban. This will come up uh, as we move along. Like her mother-in-law, who died before she married Isaac, uh, Rebecca was barren. She could not have children. And in this case, we don't have a promise made by God to Isaac that your wife will have children. Rather, we have Isaac turning to God in prayer on behalf of his wife. He prays on her behalf because she is barren. As I said, this is different from the story of Sarah, but it's instructive in that, like the case of Sarah, the answer is seen as belonging to God. My wife is barren. Rebecca, you can fix that. I turn to you in prayer and ask that you would fix that. By the way, we see this a number of times in the Old Testament of women who are barren who then call out to God in prayer and God gives them a son. It happened with Rachel, her son Joseph. It happened with the mother of Samson, who interestingly is never mentioned by name. And then Hannah, who was the mother of Samuel, made a vow to God, if you give me a son, I will give him back to you. We find women who are barren and their sons come into the world after sorrow and prayer. The sorrow is over their barrenness and they pray to the Lord. The Lord answered his prayer and his wife, Rebecca, became pregnant. It was her first pregnancy. As far as we know, uh, we're not told of any other children. It's her only pregnancy. So, uh, not having experiences, not that I could, How do you know if something is unusual? How do you know if something's not quite right? Um, She felt movement, not realizing she had twins. It's like, what's going on? You know, I've been around other pregnant women. They don't have this. What is going on with me? So she asked God. She inquired of the Lord. Um, And it is revealed to her that you're carrying twins. They will be, in fact, the fathers of two nations, two peoples, and the first one to come out, his people will serve the people of the second one to come out. That is, Esau would serve Jacob. The older will serve the younger, which culturally is unacceptable. The first son is important. We'll see more on that in a minute. Uh, And that the second son would somehow jump over him and be more important. That's, that's simply not the way things are done. And when it came time to deliver, she, in fact, had twins. Um, I, I love the way the uh, English Standard Version has it. Uh, when her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. It's like, yeah, yeah, we knew that. But, you know, they didn't have ultrasound and all those types of things. Um, so it is at the time of birth that... The truth is revealed. She has twin children, twin sons. The first one to come out is Esau, which means hairy. He's all red and just covered with hair. Um, But the second one who came out was sort of holding on to his brother's heel, uh, which seems unusual. Um, 
There are two babies, there are two sons. They're fraternal twins, not identical twins. They're quite different from one another. Um, by the way, when we are told that Jacob grabbed his heel, um, it is sort of a Hebraism, a Jewish expression for someone who, um, who cheats, you know, who seizes an opportunity, who's right there to grab at the, at the right moment to get whatever it is that he wants. We have two sons, two very, very different sons, and the differences continue through adulthood. Esau is a hunter. He likes to be in the open country. That's what he likes. Jacob likes to stay home and cook. Um, very, very different men. Uh, just a side note here. It seems, if you look at verse number 28, that the parents had favorites. Uh, Isaac favored Esau, but Rebekah favored Jacob. I don't know that I you know, should make a principle here that parents should not have favorites, but I think it is a safe rule to follow. And we will see the consequences of this, uh, the Lord willing, in the weeks to come. Now we have a really interesting, and for me, it's been a, a puzzling event. Uh, I'm glad, hope, to myself at least, for it to clear up a bit. Beginning at verse 29. Once when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country famished. He said to Jacob, quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. That is why he is also called Edom. Edom means red. So he came out red and hairy, so Esau is the hairy part. Edom is the red part. But here it's red stew. Quick, give me some of that red stew. I'm famished. Jacob replied, first, sell me your birthright. Look, I am about to die, Esau said. What good is the birthright to me? But Jacob said, swear to me first. So he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob give, gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. He ate and drank and then got up and left. So Esau despised his birthright. The differences between these two sons becomes quite clear at this point. Jacob is home cooking. Esau is out in the open country. We assume hunting and was not successful. So he comes back empty-handed, but he's famished. He's starved. And so he comes and he says, I've got to eat. Give me some of that wonderful stuff you're cooking. Um, and Jacob is quite wrong in this. I mean... If Esau wasn't his brother, if Esau was some stranger who was starving, I mean, the laws of hospitality you give to those who are in need. But Jacob's like, no, 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 I'll give you some, but you have to give me something in return. Um, first, sell me your birthright. What is the birthright? This is something I've heard all my life, but what is the birthright? The birthright is the status of being the firstborn. Now, they're twins, but Esau came out first, so he's the firstborn. He has the birthright, and Jacob's like, you know, I came out second, but I want to be number one. I want to be the firstborn son. Uh, I'll give you some stew if you sell me the birthright. 
I think for us today, this may not mean a lot. It's like first, second, who, you know, what's the big deal? Um, it meant that you are the head of the family. If something happens to your father, to your mother, you are the head of the family. It also means that when your parents die, you get twice as much as all the other siblings. Um, it's an interesting part of the law in Deuteronomy 21, which sort of deals indirectly with the birthright. Humorous is not the right word, but puzzling is... Yeah. If a man has two wives, and he loves one but not the other, okay, okay, that's, try to wrap our head around that, and both bear him sons, but the firstborn is the son of the wife he does not love. When he wills his property to his sons, he must not give the rights of the firstborn to the son of the wife he loves, in preference to his actual firstborn, the son of the wife he does not love. He must acknowledge the son of his unloved wife as the firstborn by giving him a double share of all he has. That son is the first sign of his father's strength. The right of the firstborn belongs to him. So, I mean, can you imagine you marry two women? That's hard enough. But one of them you love and one you don't. But the one that you don't love gives birth to a son first. Her son is, in fact, the firstborn and he has the birthright. It's important. He is now the head of the family. He gets a double portion of the inheritance. And the, and the father can't say, well, no, no, I actually prefer the other woman and her son. No, no, no. This is a sign of his father's strength, the first child. Esau sells this away. He sells it. Because he despised his birthright. Look, I am about to die. What good is the birthright to me? Short-term goal, not long-term. I want to eat right now. I don't care about when our dad dies and I am supposed to be the head of the family. I want food right now. And this is, I think, the big difference between Jacob and Esau. Um, one is focused on the here and now, and the other, in fact, is thinking more long-term. So he gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. He ate and drank and got up and left. And then we are told, so Esau despised his birthright. Now let's be clear. Jacob was wrong in what he did. Rather than simply, I mean, this is his brother, his twin brother, and he's starving. You're not going to give him food? Just here. By the way, it's been suggested uh, Jacob was probably hungry too. That's why he's cooking. Okay? He wants to eat too. But he is not thinking short term. He's thinking long term. So Jacob is wrong in what he did. But you'll notice how the chapter ends. Not with Jacob's failure, but Esau's failure. One commentator put it this way. If, jo if Jacob is ruthless here... Esau is feckless, that is, careless about something important. And so the story ends with these words, so Esau despised his birthright. Not, so Jacob was ruthless and tricked his brother. No. Um, the fault is seen as lying with Esau. 
In the New Testament, the contrast between the brothers is brought out in Hebrews 11 and 12. In Hebrews 11, by faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons and worshipped as he leaned on the top of his staff. So Jacob is seen as a man of faith. Not in this particular instance, but near the time of his death, he is seen as a man of faith. Esau, on the other hand, is not. And in Hebrews 12, a passage, again, that has puzzled me for much of my life, see to it that no one misses the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. See that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Afterward, as you know, when he wanted to inherit the blessing or this blessing, he was rejected. He could not bring about, or he could bring about no change of mind, though he sought the blessing with tears. So, as I said, I've, I've found this puzzling over the years, uh, primarily because of what we find in the King James Version of this verse. For you know how that afterward, when he would have inherited the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place of repentance, though he sought it carefully with tears. He found no place of in, uh, repentance seeming to indicate that Esau wanted to repent, but he was not allowed to repent. Uh, but that's not what's being said. What is being said is what he did, you know, what's done is done. He sold the birthright and it's gone. It's not his. Can't get it back. No backsies. You know, can't say, well, yeah, I didn't really mean it. I was just, you know, my low blood sugar. I was really hungry. And so that's why I, I made that ridiculous. No, no. He's seen as godless, as someone who despises that which is given by God to be the firstborn son. So, let's bring this all together. Three things I want to talk about. First of all, Abraham. You know, when we began our study, this is week 10 in our study, uh, we heard the promises that God made to him. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. We hear, I will, five times. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. I will bless those who bless you. I will bless all the peoples on earth through you. As we saw when we began this series, Abraham did not live to see these promises fulfilled. I will bless you. Yes, God did bless him. He became a you know, fabulously wealthy man. The Hittites referred to him as a mighty prince. God gave him victory in battle against the four kings of the north, or the five kings of the north. But the rest of the promises, Abraham did not live to see fulfilled. And this brings us back to Hebrew, Hebrews 11, the chapter of faith. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. In other words, God made these promises and Abraham didn't see them fulfilled, but he knew that God would keep them. And they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. 
Abraham lived 175 years. That is to say, 90 years, 100 years after God had called him. He lived to a good old age, full of years. The promises hadn't been fulfilled. Yes, he got Isaac. Yes, God had blessed him in material sense. Um, but Abraham trusted God, that God would keep his promises. And the promises continued to the next generation, that is to Isaac. So there's Abraham. The second matter I want to mention is Jacob and Esau. This is really troubling if you think about it. In Romans 9, Paul wrote, not only that, but Rebekah's children had one and the same father, our father Isaac. So Abraham, Isaac, and then Esau and Jacob, same father, okay? Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose and election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. Esau hadn't done anything. Why is he suddenly demoted? Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What then shall we say, is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. We see this lived out in the life of Jacob and Esau. We might be troubled by this. This really seems unfair. We might, in fact, be outraged. How can God says, I love Jacob and I hate Esau? It seems like God's playing favorites here. But think about it. We, we don't think this way when we think about Abraham. He was Abram back then. He was one of three brothers. Nahor, Haran, Abram. And we never say, boy, it's really unfair that God called Abram, but he didn't call the brothers. That doesn't occur to us. But when we come to Jacob and Esau, then it really gets kind of tricky. We're really bothered by him choosing Jacob over Esau. God has his purposes, and we are to trust him. As difficult as that may be at times, by his grace we are to trust him. And then the third and last thing is, God's choices and purposes don't always meet an easy road. So God chose Abraham, he chose Isaac, he chose Jacob. So easy sailing, smooth sailing, right? No turbulence. Uh, no, not really. Uh, Abram went to Canaan, and what happens? There is a famine. So he goes to Egypt, allows Sarah to be taken into Pharaoh's household. Um, you know how that worked out. Then there's the long wait for the son. 25 years. God had promised him in 25 years. I don't know about you, but if somebody makes a promise to me, and I have to wait 25 years for, for them to keep their promise... I, I think I might call into question uh, their reliability. Promises are made. The covenant and the seal of the covenant is given circumcision. 
But then Abraham fears Abimelech and lies again about Sarah. And then we saw today with Isaac, Rebekah is barren. They waited 20 years for their sons. Abraham waited 25 years. They wait 20 years for their sons. She finally gets pregnant, but it's a troubling pregnancy. She doesn't know what's going on. And now we come to the life of Jacob. So he's the special one, just like his dad, Isaac, is the chosen one. So smooth sailing, right? No. Abraham had to wait. Isaac had to wait. And Jacob goes through, as we will see the Lord willing in the weeks to come, all sorts of just really difficult circumstances. I'm like, wait a minute. If I'm the chosen one, shouldn't my life be easy, a smooth road? One writer put it this way. God has chosen and destined this man, Jacob, in a special way. The initial designation of Jacob is inscrutable. We are not told why God wills this inversion of natural right. That is, Esau was born first. But as the narrative is given to us, it is this designation by God which brings Jacob to well-being and prosperity. In an earthly way, this is a statement about justification by grace. God has taken one who is low and despised and has overturned conventional power arrangements. This is the part I want you to hear. But it is also this designation by God that begins the trouble that is to mark Jacob's entire life. Even as a designated of God, Jacob lives a troubled life. It is the juxtaposition of special designation and a life of conflict that is the mainspring of the narrative. Apparently, it is the commitment of God to this troubled man which causes the conflict. In the end, it is the same commitment, this same commitment from God, which resolves the conflicts in his favor. Jacob, you're second born, but you have the birthright, which, by the way, you sort of cheated to get. Um, your brother who's older will serve you. You're the chosen one. So, smooth sailing. <laughs> Not at all. Jacob's life will be marked by all kinds of trouble. So I think we need to really think about this, that we imagine if we are the people of God, God has loved us, has sent his son, has saved us. So our lives are going to be easy. Right? In the end, Jacob, in fact, God blessed him and took care of him, protected him. Uh, but it wasn't a smooth ride. It wasn't a smooth ride. I was asked some weeks ago what I was going to do after we finished the life of Abraham. And I said that I would continue with Isaac and Jacob to show the continuity that the promises are being fulfilled. Then the person said, oh, so you're going to do the rest of the book of Genesis. Um, I'm not sure. That, that certainly wasn't my plan. But I do want you to see that the promises made to Abraham, carried on to Isaac, and then to Jacob, um, are lived out. They are fulfilled in the lives of his people. The three patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the three matriarchs, Sarah, Rebecca and Leah. And God keeps his promises. Let's pray together.
Our Father, often when we read these passages, we think of stories for children in Sunday school. And if we read them carefully, then we begin to get troubled by all the information that's given, like Keturah and the six sons, something we hadn't heard about before. And in the process, we lose sight of the whole purpose of Scripture, and that is to point to the Lord Jesus. He is the descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You made a promise to Abraham that all peoples on earth would be blessed through him. And indeed, the coming of the Lord Jesus as the Messiah has brought grace, has brought salvation to the entire world. We thank you for Abraham and his life, for all his failures. He was a man of faith. And for his son Isaac and his grandson Jacob and his great-grandsons after them. May our vision, may our sight never be taken off the Lord Jesus. May we see that that's what this is all about. It's telling the story of how he came into the world his ancestry. People of faith, but people who messed up a lot. But your purposes were fulfilled. And as we, your children, live in this world, we trust that your purposes are fulfilled in our lives. Not only in our lives, but as they affect other lives. And may we see, in fact, that being chosen doesn't mean easy, easy road, ease. It does mean that you're with us every step of the way, as you were with Jacob, which your grace will look at in the weeks to come. I thank you for bringing us together today. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.